Help us choose which books to read next on Send Me to Sleep. You can vote using the link in the episode notes. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, a place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 85 to 88 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. In the last chapter, we learned of the brothers Timoleon and Timophanes. In tonight's story, Timoleon is sent a warning by Isites. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 85 Timoleon Sends Dionysus to Corinth Timoleon was ready to sail to Sicily with a fleet of seven vessels and a force of about 1,000 men when a message from Isites reached the Corinthians. The traitor told them it was useless to try to help the people of Sicily, for he had joined the Carthaginians, and their combined army would easily crush any force that was sent against them. This made the Corinthians so angry that they at once added 200 soldiers to Timoleon's small army as well as three vessels to his fleet. Even so, Timoleon's task seemed hopeless. Athens, with hundreds of ships and with tens of thousands of men, had failed to take Syracuse. How then could the Corinthians hope to do so with his handful of men and his small fleet? Before he sailed, Timoleon journeyed to Delphi to offer sacrifices to Apollo. As he prayed in the temple, a wreath slipped from its place and fell upon his head. It seemed to Timoleon that Apollo was already crowning him with victory. At length, all was ready and the army embarked and set sail with a favourable wind. Suddenly, 
A bright flame leaped out from the sky and hovered over the ship in which Timoleon sailed. The flame soon changed into a torch which guided the ships until they reached Regium, a town in Sicily. Here, Timoleon learned that Isates had already defeated Dionysus, who was now shut up in the citadel of Syracuse, and that he had sent the Carthaginians with twenty warships to Regium to keep the Corinthians from reaching Sicily. Timoleon had only ten vessels, and he knew it would be impossible to leave Regium unless he could in some way cheat the enemy. So he pretended to agree to Isatiz's demands, and then begged the Carthaginian generals to go with him to the assembly to tell the people what they had agreed. Meanwhile, he had given orders to his fleet to be ready to sail the moment he returned. In the assembly, the generals and the people of Regium began to talk, and they grew so interested in what they were saying that they paid very little attention to Timoleon. The generals indeed forgot all about him, which was just what the Corinthians had hoped would happen. By and by, when the conversation seemed most engrossing, Timoleon slipped quietly out of the hall and hastened to the harbour. The moment he was on board his ship, the fleet set sail and before long reached Sicily in safety. Without their generals, the Carthaginians had not known what to do, and while they had hesitated, Timoleon had escaped. But when the Carthaginian generals found out how they had been tricked, the indignation knew no bounds. Not far from the small town at which the Corinthians landed was a city named Adrenum, where there was a temple consecrated to the god Adrenus. This deity was reverenced throughout the whole island. The city was divided into two parties, one of which sent for Isites, the other for Timoleon, to help them each against the other. Both generals at once set out for Adrenum, Isites with five thousand Timoleon with only twelve hundred men. On the second day, the Corinthians found that in spite of all their haste, they had been outstripped by the army of Isites. It was already encamped close to the city. The Corinthian officers begged Timoleon to order a halt, as there seemed no need for further haste and their men needed food and rest after their hurried march. But Timoleon wished to take the enemy by surprise. He thought that if they did not delay, 
they would reach Isatis and his men while they were putting up their tents and preparing supper. So instead of listening to his officers, he seized his shield, and going to the head of his army, he bade them follow him, and he would lead them to victory. The enemy's camp was still three and a half miles away, but the Corinthians marched on bravely. As Timoleon had hoped, he reached the camp of the enemy while the men were getting ready for a meal and were unprepared to fight. Before they were aware of his approach, Timoleon had fallen upon them and put them to flight, taking the camp as well as many prisoners. The people of Adrenum at once opened their gates to the victorious general and told him that when the battle began, the doors of their temple suddenly opened of their own accord. On the threshold stood their god, holding his javelin in his hand. It was trembling as though the god was weary of its weight. Other cities, when they heard of the victory of the Corinthians, gladly entered into alliance with them. Meanwhile, Dionysus, shut up in Syracuse by Isites, was growing tired of his position, and food was becoming scarce in the citadel. He too thought it would be well to make terms with Timoleon. So he sent to the Corinthian general to offer to surrender the citadel if he would promise to send him in safety to Corinth. When Timoleon heard this, he felt more than ever sure that the gods were on his side. He gladly accepted the tyrant's offer, and at once sent two of his officers and a company of men to receive the keys of the citadel. Dionysus treated the Corinthians well, leaving to them a number of horses, a store of weapons, and two thousand soldiers. He himself escaped from the citadel and fled to the camp of Timoleon. Soon afterwards, he set sail for Corinth. Tidings of his arrival were sent before him, and as the ship drew near to the harbour, the people gathered there in excited groups. They had often shuddered at the tale of the cruel deeds of the man who was now coming to their city, shorn of his power. They were eager to see him. A few weeks later, they wondered if this man had really been as cruel as they had been told. They saw him contentedly loitering in the marketplace or spending long hours in the shops of perfumers and it seemed to them as though he must always have been as harmless as he is now. In later years, the tyrant is said to have taught the boys and girls of Corinth to read, and he also trained those who wished to sing in public. 
Timoleon had not been fifty days in Sicily before Dionysus was on his way to Corinth. The Corinthians were so pleased with their general that they determined to send him reinforcements, both in cavalry and infantry. But it was some time before the fresh troops reached Timoleon, for the Carthaginian fleet was waiting near the coast of Italy to bar the way. Chapter 86 Isites tries to slay Timoleon. The small band of Corinthians who now held the citadel of Syracuse was closely besieged by Isites. But soon he grew tired of waiting for it to surrender and hit, as he thought, on a quicker way of driving the enemy out of the island. Without Timoleon, he would not fear the Corinthians, so he resolved to get rid of him without delay. He hired two foreign soldiers and sent them to Adrenum with orders to kill the general. Timoleon went about without a bodyguard. Isatis knew. When the assassins reached the city, he was in the temple, sacrificing to the gods, for it was a festival. With daggers hidden beneath their cloaks, the men slipped in amongst the crowd of worshippers and were soon standing together, close to the altar. As they hesitated to strike the fatal blow, a sword flashed out behind, and one of them fell slain to the ground. His companion, in his terror, forgot to kill Timoleon, and laid hold of the altar, lest he too should be slain by an unseen foe. When his terror grew a little less, he did not try to obey Isatis' orders, but begged Timoleon to spare his life, and he would tell him everything. Timoleon promised that his life should be safe, and then the miserable man confessed that he and his friend had been hired by Isatis to kill the Corinthian general. Meanwhile, the stranger who had killed one of the assassins had fled to the top of the great precipice that overlooked the city. Here he was captured, and as he was hurried before Timoleon, he told the guards that the man he had slain was one who years before had killed his father. He pleaded that he had done right to punish the evildoer. It may be that the Corinthians and the citizens of Adrenum agreed with the prisoner. In any case, they were so grateful that he had saved the life of Timoleon that they gave him a gift of money and set him free. As the attack on Timoleon had failed, the Carthaginians thought they would try to frighten the citadel of Syracuse into surrendering 
So they decked the masts of their ships with reeds, and hung Grecian shields over the sides of their vessels. Then, with shouts of victory, they sailed towards the harbour. From the citadel, the garrison saw the ships and heard the shouts, but it was not so easily deceived as Margo, the general of the Carthaginians, had expected. The Corinthians were sure that Timoleon would have managed to let them know had he been defeated, so they laughed at the enemy's trick and stayed safe within their walls. Soon after this, the reinforcements sent from Corinth joined Timoleon, and he then marched to Syracuse. Margot had already begun to doubt the loyalty of Isates. He feared that he was trying to make terms with Timoleon. When, a little later, he saw the soldiers of both generals talking together in a friendly way as they fished for eels in the marshes near the city, he grew more suspicious. Day by day, his fear grew, until at length, in a panic, he ordered his troops to embark and set sail for Africa. The very day after Margot had deserted his post, Timoleon himself reached Syracuse. He looked at the empty harbour. Where was the enemy? Not a single Carthaginian vessel was to be seen. When Timoleon learned how Margot had fled, he laughed at his cowardice, and still laughing, he offered a reward for anyone who would tell him where the Carthaginians had hidden. But although Margot had fled, Isatis and his men still held the city. But the wisdom of Timoleon and the valour of his troops soon put them to flight. Without the loss of one Corinthian soldier, the city was taken. This wonderful success was said by everyone to be due to the good fortune that followed all that Timoleon undertook. The citizens of Syracuse thought that Timoleon would now make himself tyrant. To their surprise, as well as to their joy, he proclaimed that they themselves were to govern the city. He ordered the public crier to go through the streets, bidding all those who were willing to come with pickaxe and hammer to pull down the citadel which Dionysus had built. The people did not need to be asked twice. With right goodwill, they destroyed not only the citadel, but the places in which the tyrants of Syracuse had dwelt. And while they pulled down the walls, flutes sounded and women danced and sang. On the places where the palaces had stood, Timoleon ordered courts of justice to be built. So neglected and forsaken had the city been during the rule of the tyrants, as well as during the siege, 
that grass was growing in the marketplace, grass enough to feed the soldiers' horses. All over Sicily, cities had been deserted, and in some of them, deer and wild boar wandered up and down the streets. Timoleon saw that if the island was to grow prosperous again, those who had fled must be brought back, and new citizens must come and settle in different cities. So he sent to Corinth to ask her to send out colonists to the island. This she did, and she also sent vessels to Asia to bring back to their island home those who had taken refuge there. Soon, 60,000 citizens were added to the inhabitants of Sicily. Chapter 87 The Battle of Crimisus The exiles who had returned to Sicily and the colonists who had come to settle there were needed not only to till the ground, but to defend the island. For the Carthaginians, angry with Margo's failure, now sent to Sicily an enormous army, 70,000 strong. The Syracusans were frightened to see so large a force, and not more than 3,000 men were willing to go with Timoleon against them. He hired 4,000 soldiers, but of these, 1,000 deserted before a battle was fought. Near the river Cremissus, the Carthaginians encamped, and thither Timoleon hastened with his faint-hearted army. On their way, they met a number of mules laden with baskets of parsley. Now the Sicilians used to place wreaths of parsley upon the tombs of their dead, so they were sure that it was a bad omen to meet the mules, and they grew still more uneasy. But Timoleon laughed at their fears, telling them that in Corinth, the victors at the games were crowned with camplets of parsley. He then lifted some from the basket and twisted it into a wreath he placed on his head. His officers first, and then the soldiers followed his example. At that moment, two eagles flew towards the army. One carried in its talon a snake, which it had killed. The other uttered loud cries of victory. Here was a good omen. It was an ever sign of success to see an eagle, and the soldiers thanked the gods and plucked up courage. Before long, Timoleon led his men to the top of a hill that looked down on the river Cremissus. But at first he could see nothing for a thick mist veiled the river. The hill was still hidden from sight when the mist lifted from the river, and Timoleon saw that the Carthaginians had begun to cross to the other side, 
but they had no idea that the enemy was near. Now was the time, thought Timoleon, to charge the enemy while it was crossing the river. So bidding the trumpet sound, he seized his shield and ordered his troops to advance. The courage of the men had returned, and with cheers they rushed down the hill and charged the Carthaginians, who, taken by surprise, yet fought bravely. They wore heavy armor, and their breastplates were able to resist the thrust of Corinthian spears. Soon, the men were at close quarters with swords drawn, and a terrible struggle began. It seemed that now one side, now the other would conquer. While the victory still hung in the balance, a violent storm broke over the battlefield. The thunder crashed so that the orders of the officers could no longer be heard. Lightning flashed in the eyes of the startled horses and blinded them, while torrents of rain and hail dashed in the faces of the Carthaginians. As the ground grew muddy, the soldiers slipped and fell to the ground. The Sicilians, who wore light armor, easily struggled to their feet, but their foes found it almost impossible to rise. Soon the river overflowed its banks and swept across the battlefield. This was more than the Carthaginians could bear, and they turned and fled, but many were overtaken by the swift-footed Sicilians and slain. The victorious army found more spoil than they had thought possible. A thousand breastplates and ten thousand shields of marvelous workmanship, as well as ornaments of gold and silver were taken. When tidings were sent to Corinth of the great victory of Cremissus, the richest of the spoil was also sent to the city. On the booty were written these words. The people of Corinth and Timoleon, their general, having redeemed the Greeks of Sicily from the Carthaginian bondage, make oblation of these to the gods in grateful acknowledgement of their favor. Sicily was now free, and the people in their gratitude begged Timoleon to become their king. But this he would not do, nor would he even keep the command of the army. His wife and children, whom he had left in Corinth, joined him, and for a time he lived with them in Syracuse as quietly as any other citizen. When he left the city, it was to live in a beautiful country house which was given to him by the grateful people of Syracuse. As he grew older, Timoleon's eyesight failed, and at length he became quite blind. 
but old and blind as he was, the people did not forget all that he had done for them, and they loved and trusted him as in happier days. If trouble arose in the assembly, they would beg him to come to give them his advice, and the old man would order his car, which was drawn by mules, and be driven to the hall. Here he would sit and listen to the troubles of the people, and when he spoke, it was seldom that his words were not obeyed. Three or four years after the Battle of Chromissus, Timoleon died. The grief of the Syracusans was deep, for they had loved their deliverer well. Thousands of men and women, clad in white and crowned with garlands, followed his body as it was carried slowly through the city, past the places where once the palaces of the tyrant had stood. As the bier was laid on the funeral pile, a herald cried aloud, The people of Syracuse entered Timoleon the Corinthian at the public expense, and decree that his memory be honoured forever by games held each year, the prizes to be competed for in music, in horse races, and all sorts of bodily exercises, and this because he suppressed tyrants, overthrew the barbarian, replenished the principalities that were desolate with new inhabitants, and then restored the Sicilian Greeks to the privilege of living by their own laws. Chapter 88 Demosthenes wishes to become an orator. Demosthenes, the great Athenian orator, was born in 384 BC. He was a shy and delicate boy, and often stammered when he spoke. Some of his companions were cruel enough to laugh at him, and even to imitate his stammer, so he would often slip away from his playmates, but when they saw that he did not join in their games, they but laughed at him the more. The father of Demosthenes was a rich man. He died when his little son was seven years old, leaving his fortune to his child. But the guardians who took charge of Demosthenes and his wealth were careless and dishonest men. Some of the boy's money they lost, some they spent on themselves. As the child grew older, his guardians found that there was little money left to use for his education. They could not afford to get the best teachers, nor did they pay well those whom they employed, so that Demosthenes was often taught carelessly or not at all. Of the boy's mother we are told little, save that she was kind to her delicate little son and tended him with care, but 
She, too, died while he was still young. Demosthenes did not learn his lessons well or quickly, but he was interested in all that went on around him, and he soon began to distrust his guardians. Long before he was sixteen years old, he knew that they had lost his money, and even then he hoped that someday he would be able to punish them. The boy loved the beautiful city of Athens in which he grew up. Never did he tire of gazing at the wonderful temples, the noble statues which made her renowned throughout Greece. There were in these, as in other days, famous orators in Athens, to whom the citizens were ever eager to listen, for they were well pleased to be reminded of the glory days of Thermopylae and of Marathon, though now they were not anxious to win glory on the battlefield. They had grown rich and indolent and were content to stay at home content to go to the games and to the theatres. Demosthenes often heard his teachers talk of the great orators of Athens, and he wished that he might listen to their eloquent speeches. One day, Callistratus, a famous orator, was to speak at a great trial that was taking place in the city. The boy begged to be allowed to go, and his tutor at length agreed to find a corner in the hall where the boy might sit and see to hear all that went on. Demosthenes could imagine no greater treat than to be there, hidden away in the midst of the crowd, to listen to Callistratus. The speech was a great one. And when it was over, the Athenians crowded round the orator, eager to applaud, while many followed him to his home. Demosthenes came away with his ambition roused. He said to himself, I too will be an orator and make the people do as I wish. They shall applaud me, even as they have applauded Callistratus today. But another reason that made him wish to speak in public was that he might expose the dishonesty of his guardians in the law courts, for he could not be content until they were punished. When the boy had made up his mind to be an orator, he lost no time in beginning to study. He knew that he must work hard if he would succeed. For two years he read history, wrote speeches, and when it was possible, went to hear famous orators. When he was eighteen, he thought that he was ready to speak in public, so he went to the law courts and accused his guardians of theft. At first, little notice was taken of what the lad had said but he pleaded his cause again and again, until at length he won his suit, and his guardians were punished. But it was too late to recover the money, 
which was now nearly all lost.